I invite you at this time to turn in your pew Bibles to page 1,685. 1,685, where we find our scripture reading for this morning, John chapter 20, verse 1 through 10, verse 19 through 23. Another reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jumping forward to verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would accompany by your spirit the preaching of your word. Lord, may it be enlightened to us that we might see in it the glory of our dear Savior Jesus Christ. And on beholding the glory of our dear Savior Jesus Christ, by faith we might be transformed from one degree of glory to another, more and more into his likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This Easter season, we've been going through a series called Easter Through the Eyes of Peter. We actually have another sermon after this because I thought it would be beneficial to end with Peter's reinstatement at the end of uh, John's gospel when Jesus comes to him again and uh, makes up for and covers each one of his denials. But today, we're looking at another unique moment in the gospel of John that only John mentions, and it is the story of this foot race to the empty tomb. And when I think about Resurrection Sunday and the empty tomb, something I've been thinking about lately is this phrase that we've been hearing a lot. Can't wait for things to go back to normal. 
Can't wait for things to go back to normal. And I thought about that phrase a lot because when you think about once-in-a-lifetime events that change you for the rest of your life, we often say something like, this is the first day of the rest of my life. Um, For example, your wedding, right? You go and you have this great celebration, this union of these two people, man and woman in marriage, and it's before God, and it's before all family and friends. And then afterwards you leave, and your wife goes back to her place, and you go back to your place, and you only meet up every once in a while to go out for a date. If you do weddings that way, you're doing them wrong, right? Because a wedding is an event that's meant to change the rest of your life. It's meant to change the way you do things for the rest of your life. You now, the two, have become one, right? Or maybe another example would be the birth of a child. You, you, your, your wife goes into labor. You guys go to the hospital. You're there for a while. After that whole labor, there's a delivery. There's a child, and the child is being taken care of. And, and you leave the hospital. Your child is born there in the nursery still, and you just go home like you don't realize that you have another child anymore. If that's how you do the birth of your child, you're doing it wrong, right? These are events that change the rest of life. And if there's one event that we can point to that changes everything, if there's one event that we should look at in history that says that event should be the first day of the rest of our lives, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you don't get anything this morning, this is what I I want you to get. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that we could go back to normal. He rose from the dead so that we could have a new life. Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that we could return to a normal life. He rose from the dead so that we could have a new life. We're going to look at these two points this morning. The first is the empty tomb, this moment in which Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, come across this empty tomb and what that means to them and how they interpret that and and how that experience changes them. Um, And then the second is the resurrected Savior when they first encounter the resurrected Savior. So let's look at that first point, the empty tomb. Um, Verses 1 and 2, we read early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. If you pull all the information of the synoptic gospels together, you'll find a variety of different expressions. But what we're seeing here is that Mary, one of the women who went to the tomb earlier in the day to uh, anoint Jesus, his body with more ointments and whatnot in his burial to finish the preparations after the rest day of the Sabbath, Mary has come earlier than them. She's come before any of the other ones. She's arrived early and so early that we're told it's still dark outside. Some of the others who not the gospel will say it's early dawn or it's the beginning of the day. But we're told here in this moment that it's still dark outside. The beginning of the day, it's still dark outside. And the first thing that she notices 
is that the stone had been removed from the entrance. What you need to remember about this stone is that it was a very large, heavy stone that the seal was put upon it. And that seal of the Roman Empire, if that were broken, then you would be punished for, uh, you would be put to death. Breaking of the Roman seal was a, a, a crime punishable by death. And there were guards in front of this um, tomb. And there was this whole situation put together to ensure that Jesus' disciples, these uh, religious leaders were worried about, would come try to steal Jesus' body and make it look like he had been risen, he, you know, had risen from the dead. I think they thought too highly of Jesus' disciples, honestly, because to me it seems like they're all pretty surprised that Jesus rose from the dead. They weren't like, well, you know, Jesus said that, so let's make it look like that. They're like, they had no idea this was going to happen. Um, so anyways, all of this happens, right? And so Mary, she comes, and she sees that the stone has been removed. So what does she do? She comes running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And she says the first thing that she can think of, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. They've taken his body and we don't know where they put him. They thought that these mean people had put Jesus to death. They're just trying to stick it to them. They're going to take Jesus' body away from where they knew that it was so they wouldn't be able to care for it. So they wouldn't be able to know where it was and they've put it somewhere else. Well, the first thing that we can say about this morning, this Sunday morning, this day after the Sabbath, this eighth day, is that something is not normal. Something is not normal. And so what happens next? We read that Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. And both were running, but the other disciple outran, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just got to love that moment where John's just like, I'm going to make sure everybody knows that I am faster than Peter. I, I got to make sure that's in there so everybody will know, right, that I, that I raced to Peter to the tomb and I won. And nobody's going to be able to debate that. This is a historical fact now. It's written right here. And so both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And then when they get to the tomb, they examine the evidence of what's going on here. Maybe the light, the sun's come up a little bit more. It's not as dark as it was when Mary was there. And so what we see here is that the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, he bent over. He looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. He was a little shy about this situation. He didn't know if it was appropriate for him to empty or to go into this tomb and look around. He didn't know if that was appropriate. So he's sort of bashful about it. He's, he's sort of bending in. He's looking in and he sees the strips of linen lying there, right? But of course, we know at this point, Simon Peter's personality. He's a, he's a strike sword first, ask for forgiveness later kind of guy, isn't he? He, he's a, a sort of um, very non-bashful, in-your-face, uh, reactionary kind of man. And so he runs, even though he was last, even though he didn't win the race, Simon Peter is, comes behind him, he arrives, and he goes straight into the tomb. And when he goes in the tomb, he sees the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head, and the cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Why does John spend all this time describing in detail for us the way that the strips of linen 
and the way that the, the, way that the body was raw, uh, wrapped and, and the burial cloth around Jesus' head, why does he just spend all this time describing how that's lying there in a particular way in the grave? Well, because at this time, if somebody were buried, they were basically wrapped up like a mummy, and they had linen cloths put around their face with all these ointments in it to hold in the odor of the body, to keep the odor of the body held in. And if you remember the story of Lazarus, right? Lazarus, he had been in the grave and dead four days. And one of my favorite quotations from the King James Version, Lord, he stinketh. They worry that if you open the stone, if you open the tomb, you're going to smell Lazarus' dead, rotting corpse. And what we find out is that Jesus says, come forth, Lazarus. And Lazarus comes forth. What does he come forth? He comes forth like a mummy, wrapped in linen cloths. And it's all around his body. And, and when Lazarus was resurrected, right? When Lazarus was resurrected, somebody came and helped him unwrap and unwrap and unwrap and unwrap all those linen, all that, that burial cloth and all the linen and all that stuff on him. Lazarus had to take it off. Is that the way Jesus was resurrected? No. John tells us that on the place where Jesus' body laid, all of the burial cloth wrappings that were all around his body and the linen cloth that was upon his face seemed like they just... like Jesus' body passed through it. And they laid... Perfectly underneath him. And so the reader should be thinking, this is not like Lazarus' resurrection. This is different than that. This is more significant than that. This is a resurrection that is permanent. You see, Lazarus, he eventually grew old and died. This is a resurrection which is glorious. This is a resurrection which is distinguished from all resurrections that have come before. And John is describing this so that we would understand this, so that we would begin to understand that what is happening here is not normal. What is happening here is significant. What is happening here is a new event in history. It's something that's never happened before. And it says in verse 8, finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside and he saw and believed. And you got to ask yourself, John, in some sense, are you trying to make yourself look a little bit better here? Like you have an insight maybe that the others do not. Because... We read in the next two verses, verse 9 and 10, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. 
they just wanted things to go back to normal, right? John says he saw and believed, but he didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So what was it that he believed? What he believed was something happened here, but he didn't know what that was. He didn't know the essence of what that was. He didn't know the power of what that was. He didn't know the truth of what that was. He knew something happened that wasn't normal, but he didn't know what that was. And he he couldn't understand it enough to realize that he couldn't go back to normal. Because they left that empty tomb not saying, he is risen. He is risen indeed. They left that empty tomb not saying, Christ has overcome death and sin. They went back to their homes. They went back to normal. And it's not until later, that day, where they have the encounter the first encounter with the resurrected Savior. And verse 19 tells us about it. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You see... One way in which we can know that they had not experienced the power of the resurrection. One way we can know that they went back to normal. That they thought things were not different. That things hadn't changed. That they didn't realize an event had occurred that changes everything. That this was the first day of the rest of their life. As that they were found hiding in a room with the door locked and they were afraid. They were afraid that if they took Jesus off and killed him, they were going to do it to them also. And so here we have ten disciples, right? Because Judas is gone and he has killed himself at this point. And because we find out that Thomas was not present in this first encounter. What we have here in this meeting is that ten of these guys are locked into a room And the disciples are all together here, and the doors are locked, and Jesus came and stood among them. He just appeared. He passed through the walls just like he passed through the burial cloth and the linen. That somehow we are told that a resurrection body, a glorious resurrection body, does not function exactly like our current bodies. That there is something about it that is different, that it's not limited in the same way. Yet it is still a physical body. It's not a ghost. In Luke's gospel, Jesus will say, I'm not a ghost. Here, see me, touch me, feel my wounds, feel my side. Do you think I'm a ghost? Give me something to eat. He'll eat something. He'll say, do ghosts eat? Jesus wants to make sure that they know that this is not a spiritual thing happening here. This is a very physical, real resurrection. And here in this moment, the resurrected Savior 
comes to his disciples in the midst of their wanting to go back to normal, in the midst of their fear and worry and shame from their having abandoned Jesus, in the midst of all this, Jesus comes and he gives them something. And I think the reason John communicates Jesus' gift to his disciples in this moment is because the same thing that Jesus gave to his disciples in this moment, he gives to us today in and through the power of the resurrection and in and through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to us and he gives us these same things. And the first thing he gives to his disciples is his peace. In verse 19 we read, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And in verse 21, again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. Not only does Jesus come in amongst them and say, Peace be with you, because I'm sure in some sense they're very frightened by his sudden appearance. Um, Or also maybe he says, Peace be with you, to say, Calm down, calm down. But another way in which we need to understand the peace that Jesus gives here in this moment is weighted with all of the theology and all of the scripture behind the word shalom. Wholeness. Restoration. The way in which we should understand this word Peace that Jesus is giving to his disciples here and giving to us this morning. Within the context of John's gospel, he says, peace I give you, my peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give. And maybe we need to ask ourselves, what kind of peace does Jesus give? Well, the first peace that he gives is peace with Jesus. You do understand that in this moment when Jesus appears amongst his disciples, Peter has denied his Savior three times. They all abandon him. The only people we are told who are there at the cross as Jesus is giving his last breath are John and the women. At this point... Women have been the first to see the resurrected Savior and they have come and testified to the disciples and they did not believe them. At this point, these disciples have been confronted with Jesus as they walked on the road to Emmaus and Jesus told them all the things about him in the Old Testament and they did not recognize him because they believed that Jesus was meant to be the Messiah, but they did not know. They did not believe. They did not understand that the Messiah was meant to die and three days later rise from the dead. These are his disciples who are cowardly hiding in the midst of a locked room, hoping that nobody comes searching, nobody comes knocking. And so here is their master. Here is their teacher. And maybe they think in this moment, here he comes. We're going to get it. But instead, this is what he says. Peace be with you. My peace I give you. Peace be with you. 
Not only does Jesus offer his own peace between us and him, with the knowledge and acknowledgement that it is our sin that killed him, but he also offers peace with God the Father. The most beautiful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have peace with God. That in the garden we were meant to live in union and communion with God without any tension, without any violence, without any animosity. But because of sin we became enemies with God. And in Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us that that animosity, that enmity between God and us might be taken away. And that we might hear those beautiful gospel words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace with God the Father. Not that it's not the only peace that Jesus offers. The peace he offers to his disciples in this moment and the peace he offers to us is peace with others in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 will tell us about that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, between these ethnic realities. And Jesus, he came to break down that dividing wall of hostility that in him... Both Jew and Gentile might become one man, that we might become one together, that we might seek in our union to be the body of Christ. There is now now neither no Jew nor Greek, no male nor female, no slave nor free, for all are one in Christ Jesus. That is the peace Christ offers, peace with others who are Christians, peace with others who are in the body of Christ If we want world peace, that's the only way it's going to happen. Another kind of peace that Jesus offers is peace with ourselves. Peace with ourselves in the sense of hatred of our own sin, the shame and guilt that we experience from it. Jesus offers us peace because in him we have forgiveness of our sins in him we can confess our sins and know that he is faithful to forgive our sins in him we can know that we have a mediator that we have a go between but him between him and the father we have one that intercedes for us we can have peace with ourselves we can have peace with our own lives our own bodies and not only do we have peace with ourselves but Jesus offers peace with the world. Right now we are in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But one of the things that Jesus' resurrection accomplishes that we often don't think about is the restoration of all things, both believers and all creation. Romans chapter 8 tells us that the world right now is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. What that means is the world is actually tied to us And our resurrection that is tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In so much that he is the first fruits. 
and after him comes us. And as we come into our resurrection bodies, so the world is transformed in its resurrection. So one day, through Jesus Christ, we will no longer be at animosity, at enmity with the world. But in fact, we're told we'll be at peace with the world. There will be a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more war. And we will make our swords into plowshares. And little children will go and play out by snake pits and they won't be worried about getting bit. And the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Another thing that Jesus offers his disciples and he offers us as well is his power. Verse 22 Jesus says, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now this is a very interesting moment because in John's gospel there is no uh, explanation or, or um, any news given about Pentecost. At the end of Luke's gospel we're told that he's, the, the disciples are told to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He, he reiterates that and makes that more clear in Acts. Um, this is not actually the moment in which they receive the Holy Spirit in, in full because um, we're going to find out that in the very next verses. Um, so now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Um, so a week later his disciples, verse 26, were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood up. It doesn't sound like they've, they've got that resurrection power. It doesn't sound like they do, right? They're still hiding. Verse 21, or chapter 21, they're out fishing still, right? They're not going and, and making disciples of all nations. They're out in the fishing boats again, doing what they used to do, going back to normal, right? And so they don't have this power yet. But what this is is sort of an acted out parable, which prefigures the pouring out of the Holy Spirit which will come at Pentecost following his ascension. But this is very specific and unique language that John uses. When, in verse 22 when it says, And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Many of John's readers might have listened to that, heard that, and thought, where have I heard that before? And they would go all the way back to the book of Genesis and creation where we're told that God took the dust of the earth, and what did he do? He breathed into it. Life. And it's in this note, this breath of life, that John is trying to capture here in Jesus' moment with his disciples. He's saying that they now are entering into a new kind of creation. A new kind of creation, wherein they are the new kind of humanity. They're being breathed on this new kind of life, this new kind of power. And Paul will actually talk about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He'll mention this. He makes a distinction between Christ as the life-giving spirit and Adam.
verse, or chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from, this dead, from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has, not, has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Sorry, guys, I'm trying to find this. Oh, here he is. I found it. <laughs> Verse uh, 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. How did the first man, Adam, become a living being? The dust of the earth. God took the dust of the earth and he breathed into it, right? This is what Jesus is doing with his disciples right now. Um, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. I know that's a lot, but what Paul is saying here is, the natural man came first, who was of the dust of the earth, and who was breathed into this life, right? But the spiritual man came last. Jesus is of a different kind of creation than Adam. Jesus is of a more sure creation, a more positive and more uh, lasting and more permanent resurrection. And Jesus, he is a life-giving spirit. So just in the way that God breathed into Adam the life that he gave him, so Jesus now breathes into his disciples the life that he gives them. So that they become a new creation. They become the beginning of a new humanity. This is creation language. And so, Jesus gives his power. He wasn't, saying, he wasn't saying, receive the Holy Spirit at this moment. He said, rather, I want you to know that my breath, my life, my word will be in the Holy Spirit. The power that you shall receive from the Holy Spirit is my life, my breath, my word. It is me as the, the second man, the second Adam, a life-giving spirit. This power, then, is the only way we can fulfill our purpose the reason for which we were created. And this is the last thing that Jesus gives to his disciples, and he gives to us today, his purpose. Verse 21b says, after peace be with you, he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What does Jesus say in this moment? He says, you're my representatives, you're my ambassadors. You take my peace, you take my power, and you, you take it with you and you share it. You glorify my Father in your lives. You go and you do this. This is John's version of the Great Commission, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and remember that I am with you always to the very end of the age. How is Jesus with us always to the very end of the age? By his Spirit. He gives us his purpose that we might fulfill his purpose 
because we have his peace and because we have his power. This purpose is to be like Jesus, to carry the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom with us, to go and declare forgiveness of sins to all who would believe, right? And that's why Jesus says then in verse 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And what is Jesus talking about here? This is what he's saying. When you tell people what I have done, speaking my word about my work and the power of the Spirit, then I am the one speaking through you, so that if anyone believes in your word, I forgive their sins. And if anyone does not believe your words, I don't forgive them. Jesus says, you now are my ambassadors, and what I have given you to carry with you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is, I declare to you that there is someone who has died for sins, and that if you believe in him, you will be forgiven of all your sins. But if you do not believe in him, your sins will be credited to you. Either they are credited to his account or to your account. This is the news I bring to you. This is the message that I declare to you. All of us carry this message with us. All of us speak this message in our lives. When people look at us and say, wow, you have the peace. Uh, that I, go, I, I just don't understand this peace that you have. You can say, this is a peace that Jesus, the resurrected Savior, gave me. Wow, you have this ability to face hardships in your life. You have this hope. That's the power of the resurrection that my resurrected Savior gave me. You want to know about the peace and the power that Jesus offers? You can have peace with God through him because he has died on the cross for sins and you can be forgiven of your sins by believing in him. But I have to tell you, there is a God, a holy God, and he, he is going to punish you for your sins. He has to. And so if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you do not obey the gospel, you will suffer in judgment and in hell. That's what Jesus is saying when he tells his disciples, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. The gospel is the key to the kingdom. The preaching of the gospel, the one which you share of the work I have accomplished and offered to others, it is what opens and closes. You don't have the power to do that. You don't have the authority to do that. I'm giving you that power. I'm giving you that authority in the preaching of the gospel. You don't shut people out because you don't like them and you don't want them to come in. You shut people out because when you preach to them, either they believe or they don't. And if they believe, they're in. If they don't, they're out. And Jesus says, I've given you this purpose, this great privilege to be my voice and be my truth in the world, to call others to be reconciled to God, that they may receive the peace I offer, the power I provide, and live out the purpose that they were called to. Jesus comes to his disciples in this moment and he gives this to them. And he gives it to us this morning as well. His peace, his power, his purpose. And Jesus did this not so things could go back to normal. Jesus rose from the dead so that we wouldn't return to a normal life, but that we would return to a new life. 
that we could have a new life, a new, that we, would, we could be new creations, that we could be people of a new humanity. The question that I have for all of us this morning is, are you going to receive that new life? That's all you have to do is open the hand of faith and say, Jesus, I believe. Give me your peace. Give me your power. And renew in me the purpose you have called me to live out. And when you do that, I promise you, you'll see the power of resurrection life at work in your life. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that your son Jesus didn't rise from the dead so that we could return to a normal life, but he rose so that we could have a new life, that we could be new creations, that we could be members of a new humanity, that we could live out the kingdom which is coming and has already come, that we could begin to live in our lives the truth of the new heavens and the new earth. And that we also might be seeing in our lives the first scenes of the resurrection at work in our lives, the power that raised Jesus from the dead also in us, calling us to love one another, calling us to sacrifice to give up our lives as living sacrifices, to be dedicated and committed, to be filled with the fruits of the Spirit, to be renewed in our purpose, to be bold in our sharing of the gospel, to be filled with the peace that transcends all understanding, and to know the power of the resurrection in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.